Acts 6, 1-7. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of, the, of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What an amazing thing to see when God's word and this office is established, the church grows. Amazing, isn't it? And over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And here we're reading verses 8 to 13. The word of God. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also be first tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. As the grass withers and the flower fades, it is alone the Word of God that endures forever. And may He bless it to us as we hear it. Church officers, they are important, I dare to say, vital gifts to the church. You have, as we already heard a couple weeks ago, elders are to be established in every church. And elders are indeed Christ's under-shepherds. They are the ones to whom Christ has gifted and called to come and oversee His church. They take up the mantle from Christ as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5. That mantle to shepherd the flock that has been entrusted to them by the great shepherd, by the Lord Himself. And they are to labor in the name of the One who is the chief shepherd. There is a direct connection of that office to Christ. Well, no less important are deacons. And, and as much as their office is different in role and responsibility, they also bring forth the glory of Christ in that ministry of compassion and mercy that has been given to them. 
And as I intimated when we read from Acts 6, did you know the response, the blessing that God gave to the church when these holy men chosen from by the disciples from their midst, men full of faith and the Holy Spirit, began their works and labors so that the the apostles, or if you will, the elders, could give themselves over to the ministry of the Word and prayer. That what did we read about the church? It, it multiplied. It grew. Because we had these men coming and aiding the work and ministry of the gospel and kingdom of God. Deacons. It is no less an important office in the church. The thing about that word deacon though is we need to understand its use in in the scriptures. Because it's there far more than we realize. It's only in a few places where it's actually translated deacon. But it is a word that is used to speak of the ministry that all of us have. Which is why when we come here, it's important to understand the distinctive use of it in specific places when it's referencing the role of an office, which is only in three places that it it is used. Everywhere else, it speaks of God's people doing deacon work, ministering and serving. And so that word is used in a few ways in the New Testament. And it's used both as a noun and as a verb. It's speaking to what someone does and to the doing of it. (laughs) And it is is applied to everyone. It is sometimes translated servant or serving. And the Lord uses it Himself in John 12 when He is talking about any who would follow after Him. He says, if anyone serves, if anyone is deaconing, (laughs) it's the word that's used, let him follow Me, and where I am, there My servant, there My deacon will be also. That's the word that's used there. But it's applying to everyone, not an office. So if anyone serves, they are, they are doing that work that Christ calls all of us to. As well, it is translated in other places, and, and this is perhaps one of the more, more common uses of the word, minister or ministering. And then that's what it that's what it is referencing. You know, today we we sometimes call the the pastor of the church the minister. But rarely does scripture use that word to to talk about the office. It uses that word almost always to speak about what we are doing. We are ministering. We are helping in the needs that people have. Paul used it in Ephesians 3.7 to speak about what he did for people. I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. And then Peter as well uses it in 1 Peter 4.10 to speak to every one of us 
as we have received a gift from the Holy Spirit, what are every one of you to do with that gift? You are to minister it. You are to be deaconing it to one another. So it's not speaking of office, is it? It's speaking of the responsibility that everyone in the church of Christ has to be deaconing. (laughs) And if you can appreciate that language, it will help you to understand its distinctive use here in 1 Timothy 3 pertaining to the office. And as I said, as it's talking about servant, being a servant or being a minister and serving or ministering, there's only three places in the New Testament where it's actually used in reference to the office. And we have read two of them. In Acts chapter 6, when the office of deacon was established out of need, the word is used there. Not, not so much in the sense of, of describing the office, but of describing the work that these men who had the hands of the elders and apostles laid on them and were commissioned to serve. They were to be involved in the distribution, the deaconing needs of the people. And they were to be serving. In fact, that word uh, that we translate into serve or minister or deacon, its first use there in Acts 6 is serve the tables. (laughs) Be a waiter to people, if you will. We don't often use it in that sense. But that's, that's where it comes And these were to be holy men of God, filled with the Spirit, men full of faith. It's not talking about someone who may be just simply good at at serving. They had to be godly men. And as well, if you were to read Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul there, as he writes to the church in Philippi, here's how he addresses it. He, here's a church that has become established with both offices in view, and he separates the office from the general congregation. He says there, Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. That there is a distinguished office established in the church that deals with ministering and serving. And as well here in 1 Timothy 3, as Paul uses the word diaconus, deacons, he goes on to describe who they must be and what reward awaits them for their labor. Isn't it interesting He does not deal with what they must be doing. You find that in many other passages in that. And and that's not going to be the focal point of uh, of our message this morning. But in saying all of that, it, it leads us to ask this question, which is prevalent among many churches today, what about deaconesses? What about women serving in this office? 
And if any of you know some of the controversy that that exists about that within the the church, and I mean it in a in a way where people are trying to understand: Are women to be appointed to office within the church? And the prime example that is used of someone, uh, a woman who may have been a deacon, uh, Phoebe from Romans 16, verse 1. Some view that it is an office that is open to women. Some also will look at the text that's before us in 1 Timothy 3, 11, and, and where we are reading it, likewise their wives. Uh, some will say, well, that's the word used for women. And so women can have this office. What they do is they take that out of context because that same word is used in the next verse, let deacons be the husband of one wife. We understand there it's talking about a wife. Uh, The context lends it to really talking about wives of deacons. And I'll get to why that's there. But let me just remark on this. That even with Phoebe, the word is not associated there with office. It's associated with what she was doing. It is associated with what all of us are called to do. And the use of our gifts for the kingdom of God and for the help of the church and the growth of the church. All of us who have received a gift of the Spirit. And if you are in Christ, you have gifts of the Spirit. I dare to say you have more than just one. Every one of you do. It's just we don't always uh, introspectively look at ourselves and just see what our our talents and abilities and and our likes and what we do with our time. We have these things. And we are all called to minister it to one another. And some, as we know, some excel in this, don't they? And that's what Paul is saying about Phoebe. Here is one who is excelling in ministering to one another. Receive her. But it's not talking there about office. And I think that is a key thing to understand. Because they had many, and and the other point to make from Acts 6, they had many prominent women, even in Acts 6 time period of the church, that were serving and doing much for the sake of the church. But in the authority of God's Word... An apostolic authority when it came to dealing with the ministry of serving and waiting tables. The wisdom of God's word was appoint men to this office. And it's not again about talent or ability, but the wisdom of God in establishing a, a place of authority and accountability and direction in the church. Now, I know that is somewhat contentious, but there, there is God's Word on it. And the thing about this office to note, and this is more in respect of what often happens in our time and our day with this office, I want to say a few 
negative things about what this office isn't. First, deacons are not elders in training. (laughs) They are men gifted by the Spirit and and men of, of holiness and godliness who are being installed to lead the church in works of mercy and ministry. They are an officer in the church with one of the purposes to aid the elders in seeing that the church conducts itself in compassion and mercy needs. That we don't lose sight of one another's own personal needs or of ways in which we can serve the gospel in helping people in very tangible ways. Especially when you consider uh, how uh, uh, separated our lives today are from one another. Most of us generally don't see each other except on the Lord's Day. What's going on in our homes where help might be needed? And how are we going to minister to such people like our dear widow recently bereaved? And here comes the deacons to serve, not uh, in a position of aspiring to eldership, but to serve well in those compassionate mercy needs that we have. And with that, secondly, deacons are not social workers. (laughs) We're not talking about a new kind of socialism. (laughs) Because they are ministering the gospel in their labors. That's going to come out very clear when we, when we come down to uh, verse uh, 9. The gospel is not separated from these labors. It is very much an underpinning of these labors. We're not going out just to have a soup kitchen to feed people. We're going out to help them with their needs, but to do it in the name of Christ with the message of the gospel to show them that while this bull may sustain them for a day, they do not gain eternal life from this act of kindness. They need the Lord. (laughs) And lastly, and this is more prevalent in our day, deacons are not building managers. (laughs) they are not there to manage the properties of the church. Get a man or committee to do that. But don't take them away from the precious labor that is theirs to minister compassion and mercy to the people. The building, (laughs) that's the least of our concerns. We're talking about people's lives here. And in that light, deacons come and they demonstrate a Christ-likeness in their servanthood. And I want you to understand that this is an office that relates dearly to who Jesus Christ is. Do you remember 
this is one of my favorite things to talk about because it happens so often in the midst of the disciples. That great argument that they kept having among themselves and every time Jesus heard it, He confronted them. Do you know how many times they argued amongst themselves who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who is? You, you've heard me say that before. But I draw your attention to Mark 10. That there in Mark 10, the disciples were arguing about being great in the kingdom of God and elevating one above another. The Corinthian church did something similar with Paul, Apollos, Peter, and even Christ Himself. We do that. And Jesus taught them what true kingdom greatness was. What does it mean to be great in the church of Christ? Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your deacon, your servant. That's the word. You want to be great? And serve as one who ministers compassionately, mercifully to those in need. That's greatness in His kingdom. And then what does He do? He comes and He says, and you'll be like Me. For even the Son of Man did not come to what? To be served. The Son of Man did not come to be deaconed unto, but to serve. To give His life a ransom for many. You see, it's, it's following Christ. It's elevating the glory of what Christ has done for us in our midst. He came to serve us. And He served us in the ultimate way, in the giving of His life for us. He, as we heard from 1 John 3, He demonstrated His love in dying for us. He gave Himself a ransom to purchase us from death and judgment. And He just didn't come and make a payment. Gave His life. And in giving His life, He bore that very thing in death that was against us from God. He served us in the ultimate way in paying the penalty for all our sins so that the condemnation of God could be removed. He ransomed us. He purchased us. And we're going to come back to that word purchase. He did that. And my friends, what did John say in 1 John 3? If this is in you, you cannot help but be such a one who so serves. This is the love of God that has been poured out in you. Now serve in that love. Show Christ alive within you. And in particular, these deacons are doing that. They're demonstrating the glory of Christ in their service. My friends, when you see how Christ has served you, how can you not? How can you not give yourself over to this? Challenge you. 
Do you know that love of Christ in your life? Have you understood what a ransom He paid in His death? What a sacrifice of atonement He made on the cross. Do you look to that as your only hope? This is where you need to come first. We can do a lot of acts of kindness in a worldly sense to one another. Many people look and rely upon those good deeds that they do for others and think, there I've Paid that ransom that God requires of me. No, you haven't. You haven't removed one ounce of that ransom that needs to be paid. Only Christ has done that. And I implore you to look to Him, believe in Him, come to Him, and know that love of Christ in your own heart. Not trusting in yourself and not trusting in your good works. A deacon is not one who looks at what he has done and says, there, now God is going to be pleased with me. He looks at the Lord Jesus and says, I want to serve my Lord. See the difference? Now, what are the deacon's qualifications here? Well, that's what Paul spends the most time on in verses 8 to 12. Most of this section is spent on the deacon's qualifications. And as with elders, Paul's focus here is not on talent or ability. It is on blamelessness. Look at the end of verse 11. He must be found blameless. He must have a godliness and an integrity that is above measure. And and there's three things that Paul looks at here, if I could group these together, that are important in seeing who can fill this office of deacon in the midst of the church. And the first thing is, is that the deacons must have a high moral character. Moral character. And there's, there's four things in verse 8 that Paul attributes to that. They must be reverent. They must have uh, an honor that is respect uh, that shows they are respected by people for their kindness, for their goodness, and for their faithfulness. That's that's all entailed in that word reverent. They must be reverent. It's the same thing with their wives in verse eleven. That there must be found in this in this man uh, a respect of people who who see they are kind and good, and faithful. And why is this important? It's because they're working with people directly. (laughs) Perhaps even going into their homes. They're ministering in a very special, particular way. And not only reverent in that moral character, they must not be double-tongued. In other words, he must have an integrity with his words. He cannot be saying one thing to one person and another thing to someone else. He's not there to please people with whatever they feel they want to have or do or be or believe. He cannot be saying one thing and doing the opposite. 
Remember that parable Jesus told of the two sons in Matthew 21? The father comes to him and says, I want you to go out and work in the field. And one of the sons said, Yes, I will. And uh, he didn't. And the other son said, No, I won't. And he did. And Jesus, of course, was challenging, you know, which one uh, had uh, higher honor and respect? Which one obeyed? And it was the one who said no at first, but went out and did it. Uh, As one commentator said, and I agree with him, well, until something changes, neither of those men are qualified for deacon. Because they must be able to say and do. They must have an integrity of speech. Because again, they're working with people. They have to be men who can be trusted. They must not be given too much wine. They can't be drunk. They can't be drunkards. They can't be men who are prone to inebriation. Again, they're working with people. A high standard of self-control. They're dealing with people's lives. And they must not be greedy for money. We're going to hear more of that when you come to chapter 5. About working with widows. Helping those who are in need. And we know con men, con men, above all else, they prey on widows. Even today, it is horrible to read how many elderly women have their life savings stolen from them. These are men who can't be greedy for money. And these are things, when you, when you hear about this moral character, these are things that you're to be looking at in their lives, listening to their speech examining them. That's what he says a little further on in verse 10 when he says, let them be tested. Don't just put someone in place because you think they're they're good at something. I mean, con men are good at talk, aren't they? <laughs> let them be tested. And, and, and affirm their moral character. And secondly, the qualification, they must be sound in doctrine. In verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Again, their ministry is not mere socialism. It is a ministry that is not absent from the gospel. And going back to Acts chapter 6, Stephen and Philip, two of the men who were selected to form the first diaconate, their ministry is highlighted in chapter seven, 6 and 7 and 8. They are shown to be men who were full of faith and able to bring the gospel with the labors that they were committed unto. They served the kingdom of Christ. What opportunities 
such men and such people, even you, dear Christian, if you are helping and serving someone, what opportunity is ours to present the good news of Jesus Christ in real and tangible ways and to have yourself prepared and ready to speak of your faith when you are serving. Because you know when you come to someone, maybe it is a neighbor who has uh, been in hospital, is ill, and you think, I want to come and bring them uh, a meal. And you do. What, what do you hear from them? They're just overflowing with what? Gratitude. And what an opportunity. And, and I know we're shy in this, but we ought not to be. What an opportunity to say, you know, the Lord... The Lord has served me in greater ways than this. I do this for Christ and I see your need and I know what my Savior would do. And, and you, you draw out that flavor that we're not just being like men of the world. We're being men of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They must hold fast to the truth of the gospel. It must be evident they are in Christ. And as he says there, they're to hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. These aren't men who are hiding, who are otherwise ashamed or compromising the faith in their service. It's being demonstrated. Because being a follower of Christ is why they serve. And they are to have, thirdly, a stable household. And he focuses here first on their wives in verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. And again here, I want to emphasize it is their wives because going down to verse 12, he he affirms that same word, one wife. It's the context of of many deacons will find themselves serving and laboring in this office and their wife becomes one of the chief helpers. Now this is not to say that single men can't serve in this office. Of course they can. But here are some of the issues of a stable household. Their wife must be blameless too. She must be guarding her tongue. She must be temperate like Him, faithful in all things. Because one of the great things that we know of the ministry of Christ when He served people, one of the great things we hear about Christ was He looked upon people, saw them in their need, was filled with compassion. He was gentle. He was lowly. And He never neglected anyone. And there is the example that we are in our imperfect state following. Husbands must have the same compassion and mercy exercised in his home toward his wife as he would exercise to others. There is no place in the husband's heart for bitterness or domineering or argumentative manners towards his wife. Why? Because, my friends, that will carry over in their ministry. How many times when it comes to helping the poor and the needy do we hear, well, 
it's their own fault. <laughs> or, well, if they just went and got a job. <laughs> That's not the language of a deacon. <laughs> or, well, we've helped them twice already. They're just taking advantage of us. That's not the language of a deacon. The language is, well, how can we help? What can we do? It might be more than just meeting the needs. It might be more in getting involved in their life. But you have to be able to do that without bitterness and argumentation. And how do you know they're not bitter and argumentative? Listen to how they deal with their wife, their children in your home. And in this way, such a man is able to represent Christ and His church to those whom He ministers to. These standards are high because it is a demanding office. You consider Christ again. There are many times when you're reading the Gospels that Christ became exhausted physically in helping people, serving all the needs that He was striving for. Christ gave Himself over to the demands of ministry. But He had no harshness, no bitterness. It was pure love. He sighed at times because they didn't get the gospel. But He helped them. That's the character, the qualifications of a deacon. And what Paul focuses on after this, secondly, in verse 13, is a deacon's reward. Being a deacon is demanding. It is difficult. It is tiring. And sometimes you find yourself doing the same routine over and over and over. That's said of Jesus Everywhere he went, people brought out the sick to be healed. He still spoke to them. He preached everywhere he went. But people were more interested. Meet our needs. Meet our needs. It can be tiring. Yet, when you think of what Peter said about the office of elder, the elder looks beyond his labor. 1 Peter 5.4 He looks beyond his labor to the appearing of the chief shepherd from whom he will receive the crown of life that does not fade away. He's not looking at his labor and looking for reward from his labor. He's looking at his Savior and he labors with his eyes set upon the crown of life. So to the deacon. There is a heavenly mindedness that comes and works in the heart of such a man where he is earthly good. (laughs) And that's how it works. Again, I stress this. It was Eric Alexander who I heard it first from. He says, we often get it wrong. You hear it in the church. Someone is so heavenly minded they are of no earthly good. Well, that is contrary to Scripture. If you are not heavenly minded, you are not earthly good. It begins, and so too with the deacon. 
the deacon is rewarded for a well-served ministry. He's rewarded in an earthly sense. He will obtain for himself a good standing. And that word obtain, it's only used one other place in the New Testament. And it's in Acts 20, it's that word I said earlier about Christ purchasing His bride with His blood. Acts 20, 28, where the elders are told to shepherd the church of God which He purchased, which He obtained, which He gained with His own blood. That's the word that's used here to the deacons. As they serve well, they are gaining something from God. And that is a good standing among men. They will receive honor and respect from people and the church. It becomes very difficult, doesn't it, to fault such a man. (laughs) But he also gains great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I think this is something that applies to all of you, dear people, as you minister and serve, you gain a great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Your faith matures. And God matures it by His Spirit at work in you. And for a deacon, it's their confidence, their hope, their assurance of faith in Christ is enlarged as they serve well. And where does that help the most? Well, Hebrews tells us. Where do we hear that word boldness used? It's in Hebrews 4 and in Hebrews 10. It helps the most when we come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. Oh, what it is to ask of God, to ask of God, to ask of God, but to be stingy in our lives, in our services of mercy. You gain no assurance before the throne of God to say, okay, Lord, will you help me again in all of my faults and all of my needs? God, come and help me. And God helps you and you go out and you're like that, that servant who was forgiven. A debt he could never pay and goes out and throws his brother in prison for a debt that is so minor. No, this is the opposite. As you're ministering, as you're serving, as you are demonstrating Christ in your life, what happens is the Spirit enlarges your heart in the faith where you come to the throne of God and you say, Help me! And He does! And you rejoice and in following with the words of Christ freely as you have received, you give. What a circle of grace. And so emulating Christ, the one who said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. In emulating that gospel in your life, The Spirit enlarges your heart to a boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. To draw near to your God in fuller assurance of faith. And what happens when we draw near to our God? He draws near 
to us. Isn't that marvelous? That's, that's God's mercy and grace. He promises you will experience a richness of communion in His grace and mercy. So it's a grand office. It is one that again, men are to be aspiring to. It is in that light that our church as a whole ought to be deaconing wherever we can. And all that God would raise up such men in our midst to lead us in the imitation of Christ. Let us pray.